Do you guys mind if I give you this notebook? I just know the way that my mind works. I'll be reading that notebook instead of talking to you guys. Um, it's just the reality of it. Good morning, everybody. My name's Chris, and I'm an alcoholic. I am absolutely delighted to be here. And first, what I want to do is I wrote down just a couple thank yous because I didn't want to just get off and running and completely forget to extend my gratitude to this committee. You guys have been amazing. You're such a powerful committee. This has been a phenomenal conference. I've served on committees before, and I know the work that goes into something like this. So I would like to give them another big round of applause. I told Ariella, I said, you know, I'll be pretty low maintenance, and then next thing you know, I'm telling her, okay, I got special needs when it comes to food, and I got to, yeah, and I'm not going to be able to eat the food that you have, and then Marianne got involved, and like all these people, and it was like they just created this magical moment where all of a sudden, like, food appeared on my plate that I could eat, and all these things were happening, and that only happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I mean, and they are so service-oriented, and it's so good to see some people that I've met before, and then to see some new friends and some new faces, and I just want to thank you for this amazing experience. Um, it's just been a lovely time, and the truth of it is, is that a woman that lived the way that I lived and did the things that I did and ran with the people that I ran with doesn't wind up in an amazing, beautiful hotel. I'm really not sure where I am. Um, your, your conference says Cincinnati. And the address says Kentucky. And I'm like, where am I going? You know, and I just, but you know, that's, that's how we live in Alcoholics Anonymous too. I loved what somebody else, I think it was the speaker last night talked about, you know, getting in cars with people you don't know, going places that you don't know where you're going is really not a big deal, you know, and. That happened to me once I was going into Toronto, and, you know, I got stopped at customs, and the guy said, where are you going? And I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, and he, go, and he said, well, how are you getting there? And I'm like, well, somebody's picking me up, and, and he's like, okay, who is that? I don't know, you know, and it's just, I mean, it's this way of life, and another time I walked into a hotel, and I can't even tell you what state it was in, um, but I walked into this hotel, and I said, well, there should be a room and I have these three new girls with me and they're like, yeah, there's not a room under your name. And I said, well, it might be under the name of, you know, the conference and that didn't pan out nice. And I said, well, somebody else made the reservation for me. And, and they said, well, who's that? And I said, I don't know, <laughs> some guy, you know, and she looked at me and looked at these three other girls that were with me looking like hot messes, right? Cause they are brand new. They're still twitching. And she goes, well, maybe you need to call someone. Okay. All right. Maybe I do. But yeah. So, you know, we just, these are the things that we do. But, but like I said, a woman that lived the way that I lived did the things I did. They don't wind up here. The truth of my story is, is they wind up in an unmarked grave somewhere. And absolutely nobody's looking for me. Because when I'm in the throes of my disease, I am, if I disappear from your life, there is absolutely nobody saying, oh my gosh, where did Chris go? Where, we've got to find her. We've got to get her back. What could have possibly happened to her? Instead, they're saying things like, thank God that's over. Thank God she can't hurt us anymore. Thank God she can't hurt our children anymore. Because you see, when I'm in the throes of my illness, there is absolutely no one anywhere, any place that is safe to be around me. I'm just trying to check and see what time it is so we aren't here till noon. I realize checkout's noon, but I'm not going to do that to you. We'll take an intermission at 1130 <laughs> so you can go pack your stuff up and you know, get out. But, <laughs> but instead of winding up in that unmarked grave somewhere, I was blessed with a seat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous by a higher power that at that time I didn't even believe in on October 29th of 1994. And there isn't a day in my life that I am grateful enough for that event happening. And I know that. And that's why when somebody asks me to do a simple act of service to suit up and show up, and that's why somebody asks me to help clean up after a meeting, you don't have to ask me twice. And that's why when I had the longest time of any woman in AA in my hometown, I'm the girl that's clean in the bathroom after the home group meeting. Because, you see, there isn't enough that I can give all of you for what you've given me. Because what I know for certain is... 
I have been given a life beyond my wildest dreams. And it's not that I have the Maserati, if that's the talk you're looking for. I think it was the girl last night. Probably not me, you know? And she looked more like the Maserati girl. But, um, you know, and it's not the million-dollar house. But you see, what I have are things like integrity. I know who I woke up with this morning. I knew where I was. I have all those things that money absolutely can't buy. And you blessed me with a seat, and you allowed me to be with all of you. And I want to stand up here in front of you, and I just want to be the crown princess of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? I want to put on my little Miss AA sash and my tiara and say, I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is how you do it. And if you do it like I did, you can have what I have, and you too will be happy, joyous, and free. But that's absolutely not the truth of my story. And I am called upon by my strong, strong, strong family of sponsorship to stand by this podium and tell you the truth. I always tell my sponsor, I don't want to tell those parts of my story. And she reminds me, that is your story. That is the story that you need to tell. That is the story that your higher power has called you to tell, Chris. This has nothing to do with the story that you want to tell. Because you see the truth of my story, the reality of it, the rigorous, honest part is... Is it's not an idea, it's not a belief, it's not this supposition, it's an absolute fact because I've lived the experience, is that the only ones dying of untreated alcoholism are not necessarily the newcomer that's sitting in this room today. It's not necessarily the person that probably laid on a register grate in the middle of Cincinnati, Ohio last night during a windstorm. It's not necessarily the person that maybe has a day, a week, or a month in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. It very well might be the person with 5, 10, 15, 20 years sitting in this room this morning. And if you really want to get scared, it might even be your sponsor. And the reason that I say that is because that is my lived experience. We were talking about that before the meeting. You know, I was walking around in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous taking fake it till you make it to an art form. And... What happened, there was, you know, a whole series of events, and if that's what God chooses to talk about, that's what we're going to talk about today, because I don't decide what I'm going to tell you anymore. I allow my higher power to work through me, and I just show up as honest as I can, and there have been times in Alcoholics Anonymous in the first 17 years of my sobriety where I stayed sober literally on fierce grace alone. And if you don't know what fierce grace is, there's that beautiful grace where, you know, the sky parts and you get the job of your dreams or the man of your dreams or the woman of your dreams and the apartment, you know, comes open at just the right time and all this stuff happens and you're like, you can literally hear the angels sing, right? It's like, you know, and you're gifted and you're like, oh, yes, isn't sobriety wonderful? I'm talking about the fierce grace where you're face down on the floor, arm behind your back, screaming uncle, and you can't figure out what you're doing wrong because you're an active member in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's exactly how my story unfolded. But because of people that not only told me the truth about their messy drinking from behind this podium, but the people that told me about their messy recovery from behind this podium... I have stayed in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous as a member in good standing for the last 28 years. You see, as I said, I owe you my life, and it's a life beyond my dreams. And do I deserve this life? I don't know. Our book says that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. But what I know for sure is, is that my partner deserves the partner that you've turned me into. My son deserved the mother that you turned me into. My employer deserves the employee that you turned me into. And my father, as he was dying from Alzheimer's, deserved the daughter that you turned me into. And when my dad was dying of Alzheimer's, he was my biggest support. You see, when I was four years away from my last drink, and I was circling the drain in Alcoholics Anonymous myself, my mother died from the DTs in a hospital in Columbus, Ohio. You shake my family tree and bottles fall out, not, you know, happy lives. And so my dad had lost his wife of 52 years to this illness. And when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, he loved you. I mean, he adored you. And when he was in his Alzheimer's, 
every single time I'd be sitting in his room at the care center when I could no longer care for him because you taught me how to be a daughter. I showed up every day on my way home from work, and I would sit there with him, and an orderly would come in, or an aide would come in, or his doctor would come in, or somebody would come in the door, and the only thing that my dad could say to them was, you see my daughter Chrissy? She's in Alcoholics Anonymous. She's sober. And he couldn't even remember his own name. That's how important you guys are to people that aren't even in these rooms. That's how practicing these principles in all of our affairs changes lives that are just epic. And um, just so that you know, I am that real alcoholic. I'll, I'll let you know that my alcoholism you know, reared its ugly head when I was approximately four years old. <laughs> now, I wasn't obviously a daily drinker, but what happened? Um, I would have liked to have been. Um, I was wound a little tight, so. But what happened to me at that time was it was Christmas Eve, and my parents had busted out some cold duck champagne, you know, top shelf kind of stuff, and they gave my brother and I both a glass of champagne to knock us out so that they could go about their business on Christmas Eve, right? My brother, who's eight years old, drank his champagne, and he had the effect my parents wanted produced. And he went right into his bed and dreamt of sugar plums all night long. According to family legend, I don't remember this, but they say that little Christy appeared in the doorway that night approximately 17 times asking for more juice. Now, was I born alcoholic? It appears that I perhaps I caught that genetic bullet right between my teeth. Um, But, you know, I just, that night, even the first time I ever had a sip of alcohol, something happened differently in my mind, in my body, and my spirit. Of course, I couldn't articulate it at that time. But the feeling was very obviously different. And then at about age 11, I started getting to have some experiences with alcohol. I ran around with five other girls. They referred to us as the six-pack. Might have been a warning sign. Little red flag there. But um, my girlfriends would have a normal reaction to alcohol. We would con Mr. Creepy down at the 7-Eleven into buying us a six-pack. I heard somebody else talking about that, too. You know, and I mean, it worked. I mean, you're on your little bicycle, and you snatch the beer out of his hand, and you pedal as fast as you can to get away from him, because you know he's going to catch you. And so then we would each have a beer, and we would go to the local house party, and we're, like I said, we're 11, 12 years old. And my girlfriends are having a normal reaction for 11 or 12. They're getting giggly, they're getting flirty, and I'm getting half mine down, and I'm having this complete psychic change. And something's coming over me that doesn't seem like it's coming over them. And then the terror sets in. And the terror set in because I knew that I was already halfway through mine and it was about to run out. So what I would do is I would, I had this girlfriend, and we'll just call her Jerry to protect the guilty, and let's just say she got real friendly with the boys at a very early age, okay? And so I would look over at Jerry, and then I would look over at somebody like Bob, and I'd be like, all right, and I'd run over to Bob, and I'd be like, hey, Bob, you see Jerry over there? And his eyes would light up because he knew Jerry's reputation, and he'd be like, yeah, and I'd say, she thinks you're cute, And now Jerry hadn't even acknowledged Bob all night, but all of a sudden Bob is just happy to be alive, and I run over to Jerry, and I'm like, Jerry, you see a Bob over there? And now Bob's giving her the eyes, and she goes, yeah. And I said, he thinks you're cute. And so then next thing you know, the two of them hook up and go into the closet and play seven minutes in heaven. It was the 70s. And I drank the rest of their beer. So the truth is, at 11 years old, I'm pimping out my girlfriends for alcohol. So, and that's just how my alcohol went. You know, I wasn't willing just to sell my soul. I'm going to sell your soul. I'm going to sell everybody's soul around me. And then I had an experience at age 13 that... You know, I hadn't thought about in a while until I came back down here. And I have family from here and things like that. And um, my one cousin was corporate attorney for Cincinnati Reds and Boeing Aircraft in the 70s. And I came down here to visit him, and he took us to a little place that some of you might be familiar with called Beverly Hills Supper Club. It's one of the most well-known tragedies in your area, um, and he took me into that supper club and took my friend Jerry, because she was my you know, sidebar. We always rolled together. 
And I remember walking into that place, and there was red, like, velvet walls, and these red, you know, and the smoke was just pouring out of there, and all the tinkling of the glasses. I so identified with that when Bill Wilson would talk about that sound and the gay chatter. And I walked in, and I thought, just like Bill Wilson, I have arrived. And there I was in my little psychedelic 70s dress and my white platform shoes, and I'm strutting through there like Miss Universe. And I'm, like I said, I'm 13 years old. And I can tell you every detail of what was on that table. I can tell you the walls. I can tell you everything. I can't tell you those details of my first marriage. It's like, you know, it just, it had that effect on me. And, but obviously I wasn't able to drink the way I wanted to drink that night. It wasn't until I was 14 years old that I had my first experience with as much alcohol as I could possibly put into my system. What happened to me that night was I found the higher power I didn't even know I was looking for. Because before that night, I had experiences just like probably a lot of you in here. I always, there was that voice in my head that said, you're not enough, Chris. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You're not tall enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not athletic enough. You're not whatever it was that I saw in you. I couldn't measure up. And then there was this other voice that would come in and say, what do you mean you're not enough? They're always telling you're too much. They're always saying you're too loud, you're too rowdy, you're too desperate, you're too needy, you're too emotional, you're too angry, you're too violent, you're too bitter. I don't remember anybody ever saying, you're too nice, Chris. But even if they would have said that, I wouldn't have retained it. Because I have this alcoholic head that has what my friend Ed M., who's in the big meeting in the sky now, that talked about the 299 to 1 theory. If there was 300 people in this room today and 299 of you came up and said, God, Chris, I'm so glad you were here this morning. I'm so glad you were a part of our conference. And then one of you came up and said, I don't like your shoes. Guess who now owns my life? Guess who I'm thinking about morning, noon, and night? You know, and I can still go there. I'm going to be really honest with you because I literally overheard a comment yesterday And I had a conversation with that person at 2 o'clock this morning, you know, and it was like, and thank God I have tools, you know, I was, you know, I was referred to as underrated, and it was like, oh my God, you know, and it was just like, it was after I did my 11th step workshop, and I was like, whoa, that's a little harsh, you know, and I just, and then it started owning me, right, and then I realized, no, I have tools, I got tools in my toolkit, and I made it all the way. I did a 10th step and made it all that way to that fourth column, and you know what I realized? I realized that that the only reason it bothered me is because that was my thought, too. You guys have given me a set of tools. You know, I had those of you that were in the 11th step workshop. um, I had some surgery, some outpatient surgery on Wednesday, and they pumped me full of anesthesia. And I've got a little problem with my liver. I know you might find that shocking. Um, But I cannot detox chemicals anymore. In fact, I have an autoimmune illness that I have to treat holistically because the medication that is used for that autoimmune illness will kill me. So I'm a real fun person to be around medically. And so, you know, they really have to watch things. And usually after I have anesthesia, you can ask Bob, I do, like, body work. I mean, I will go to, like, I'll go have somebody, you know, perform weird things on me. I will do body work, but I'll go to saunas. I'll do detoxes. I have to do all these things. Didn't have time to do those. So it's amazing, you know, how those old defects of character, no matter how long you're sober. And the beautiful thing is now is because I'm living this spiritual way of life and I'm living in a set of tools that work, I'm watching for those things. And as soon as somebody said that, I realized I got tools to work through this. And it's just such an amazing, beautiful way of life. But I didn't have those back then. What I had back then, you know, as I always say, I was going through life like somebody ripped my eyelids off. And I'm just in there going, oh, my God. And life is coming at me like in those snowstorms. Have you ever drove in those snowstorms where it's like, you know, God's little psychedelic acid trip? You can't really see where you're going, and it's just coming at you. And so... That's exactly how I was, but, you know, back to my drinking, um, I'm not going to go through all of it. What I can tell you is drinking became a priority instantly for me because what alcohol did for me was it took that too much and brought it right down to just enough, and I could look you in the eyes. It took that not enough and brought it right up to just enough. And for the first time ever, I could look you in the eyes. And I'll never forget that night at 14 years old when I walked into a room full of people like this, And I could have cared less what you thought of me. 
You see, alcohol did for me what I was never able to do for myself. Alcohol changed my perception of me. And when my perception of me changed, then my perception of you changed. When my perception of me and you changed, all was right with my world, and I was happy, joyous, and free. And what I did is I went on a 20-year pilgrimage to recapture the bliss that I felt that very first night. And that very first night did not end well. It ended with me laying on my parents' bathroom floor. Once again, it's the 70s. I'm hanging on to their pink shag carpeting because I feel like I'm going to fall off the earth. It's spinning so bad. And I am throwing up everything that I've put in me out through my nose. And my father walks by and he's like, I bet you won't do that again soon, is all he says. And as my first real drunk's coming out my nose, I'm thinking, I hope I can do this tomorrow. This is a small price to pay for what this did for me. And that is how I always drank. And everything was a small price to pay. And when I was 17 years old, I wrote and had produced a public service campaign for PBS television. And I tell you that not to brag. I tell you that because I was given some God-given talents that it's amazing. It's coming around full circle right now that I'm doing some work for some people back home in a field that I absolutely love. But um, And... So what happened was I won this huge competition, and I was given an internship for as soon as I graduated from high school at 17 years old with the largest advertising agency in the eastern half of the United States, and I was set for life. And then I found out it was an unpaid internship. And at 17 years old, I hadn't learned how to con and manipulate and do all the things that I would do later in my drinking. And I didn't believe that I could live for three months without an income coming in to be able to do what I needed to do to get what I needed to get. And I said no thank you to the greatest opportunity I could have been given. And so then about a year later, this same cousin that I told you about that was down here in Cincinnati, he was watching me. And he knew I had some potential. And he said, Chris, he said, why don't you come down to Cincinnati? We'll get you in undergrad school in Xavier University. He said, and then we can get you into grad school. He said, the way you love to argue, you would be a great attorney. We can get you on the firm. You once again set for life. I never stepped foot in a classroom in Xavier University because I appeared in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we found out that I was much better at breaking the law than I was studying it. And I was asked to leave. And that's what I do with every single opportunity that is literally handed to me on a silver platter. And I can still do that today if I'm not spiritually fit and I don't run all of these ideas and opportunities through that filter that you have given me of God's grace, the gifts, strong sponsorship, and the fellowship. And so I went back to working at the local discount store, making about $2 an hour rearranging plastic shoes in the back room, right? Um, And so I'm just off and running. And every door marked no by society's standards that I thought would change me from the neck up, I ran to that door, threw it open, and jumped in. And I was always looking for something that would give me a permanent effect that alcohol would give me on a temporary basis. And I could never find it. And somewhere along the lines, I got this crazy idea that the right relationship would fix me. You know, I'm sure you've never done that before. Um, and, And the way my relationships look at this point, right, it's Friday night, it's happy hour, I've been hanging out there for about two hours. We've just met, and I love you. And so I take you back to my apartment, and I am whispering sweet nothings into your ear. I love you, baby. I love you. And you could care less. You're just out there to get, you you want what I have, okay? That's just the bottom line. So you're willing to put up with any of my craziness until I have that Linda Blair moment. Our book calls it a personality change. Um, All of a sudden, my head spins around, and one minute I have my tongue in your ear, and the next minute I'm going, I hate you! Get out of my life! I don't ever want to see you again! And I call you all of these things that I have words that I will not use from behind the podium, but let's just say I'm calling you everything but a child of God. And so, and this is a little information if you're a woman in here and you're new, you tell a guy to leave... They hear leave. They don't hear, come here and love me. Okay, so that's just a little information. Um, and so, because what I meant was, come here and love me. But, um, 
And so he left. He always left. And then before, though, his car is backed out of the parking place in front of my apartment, I have sprinted out the front door and thrown myself, spread eagle, superhero style, on the hood of his car, hanging onto the windshield wipers, because I had seen that on a movie, screaming, why are you leaving me? I love you, as he's trying to pull away. And for some reason, you guys always left. And I couldn't understand that. I was so delusional. I, I understand that line in the book that you can't tell the true from the false. That is not only about my drinking. That is about everything I do in life. Because I literally could not see the error of my ways in that situation. And But I'm not a quitter. So by the time I came to all of you at 33 years old, I had been married and divorced three times. Um, by the time, you know, I did do it once again early in sobriety, and it still didn't go well. Um, but, you know, like I said, I'm not a quitter. And the last guy that I drew into my active alcoholic pit of insanity was a really successful businessman. You see, I bought society's lie that said if you have the him and the house and the cars and the things and the stuff, that will fill this gaping wound that is in my gut, that the cold wind blows through and that is never settled and that I lay in bed at night and it feels like one of those, Bob just bought me a really cool Vitamix and it's like I watch it going, you know, making my little smoothies in the morning and I'm like, ooh, that looks like my gut used to look, you know, and it just, and that was this unsettled spirit and this unsettled soul and I didn't know that at the time. And so, he would, you know, I would fancy all up just like I did this morning. I lovingly refer to it my Stepford wife years because everything on the outside looked perfect. You know, I was just perfectly coiffed and everything looked just right. And I would walk into these business cocktail parties and I'm living in the illusion that I can drink like a normal person. But I'm full of self-centered fear and self-pity because that's the root of my illness is this self-centeredness, this selfishness. And I don't understand that I can't sip and socialize with you. And the only tool that I have in my toolkit is what's behind that bar. So I make a beeline for that and I get this, this little drink and they would give them to you in these little plastic cups just like this. They'd fill it full of ice cubes and wave a liquor bottle over the top of it and the fumes that would fall in, they would call it a drink, you know, and I would put those fumes into my system and I didn't know I had an allergy. They would kick off this craving, and the second those fumes got in, it was like throwing a match on some gasoline. And I had to have more, and I had to have more. And before the night was over, I would be, you know, in the back of the party doing things with my husband's coworkers I shouldn't be doing to get what I need to get. Or I would be in the parking lot doing things that I shouldn't be doing to get what I needed to get. Or I would leave the venue altogether. There was one incident where I came home three days later in Lee Greenwood's stolen tour bus and rolled up in front of our house and marched into the house. And my husband, who now I understand was appropriately upset, and I walked in and he goes, where have you been? And I looked at him. I'm like, what's your problem? I just ran into some friends. And you could have hooked me up to a lie detector test and I would have passed. Because I literally cannot tell the true from the false. I'm a chronic victim. And so we had this little business cocktail party once and I learned some social graces and that's when you're full of self-centered fear and self-pity and you crush one of these little plastic cups in your hand and liquor runs down your arm. Do you know normal people find it socially unacceptable when you go like this and lick it off? I know. Who knew, right? And I had that last finger in my mouth because you got to get what's under the fingernail when I looked over and I saw him. And his face was bright red, and that vein that you men have in your forehead, I know you got one. And we women can make appear on a moment's notice. It looked like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. It was like, bam, bam, bam. And I said my first ever sincere prayer right then, and it was, dear God, please let his head blow off, because I don't know how to get out of this. That was the spiritual toolkit I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. Make his head blow off. And, you know... It's, it's just who I am. And needless to say, I was never invited to another business cocktail party. But I go home, and I'm a good alcoholic with a plan. See, I don't only have the illusion. I have that delusion that says I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I just manage well. And so I go home, and I'm like, I got the him. I got the house. I got the cars. I got the stuff. What could possibly be missing? And the only thing I could come up with was a child. 
And so that's exactly what I did. I got pregnant on purpose to fix what was broken inside of me. Now, please hear, though, that I wanted that child more than anything. I had wanted a child my entire life. As I told you, I was raised in an alcoholic home. I had never wanted anything more than that little boy. And I hear a lot of people say that they just wanted someone to love them, and that wasn't my story. I wanted someone to love. And I truly believed I could give that love to that child that I had not been given. You know, I guess I understood some spiritual principles at that time. I didn't even know it. I had to give it away to keep it. And that's what I wanted to do. And I'm, I think I can be a good mom. And I'm telling this little boy for nine months that I'm, he's not going to be raised the way I was. And he's going to have this beautiful life. And what I didn't know is I was already dying of untreated alcoholism. And I'm trying not to drink. And without a sufficient substitute... All my character defects rule my life. And I was like that little guy that used to be on the Verizon commercials that defected to Sprint or somewhere. And I would be two feet behind my husband going, can you hear me now? 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 Because, see, I am putting these faulty emotional dependencies on you and you and you because that gaping wound is in my soul and I can't fill it with anything. And now I've got all the stuff and now I'm pregnant. I have everything I've ever wanted. And I don't want to drink. You know, I was already developing this thing where I was willing not to drink. But you couldn't really tell me I had a problem at that point. And I didn't have a sufficient substitute. And I was never unwilling. But at that point in my life, I was absolutely incapable of not drinking. And I eventually got to the point where I had that little boy. They laid him in my arms. I expected to have that moment of grace I told you about where the skies part and because he was beautiful, he was perfect, he was amazing. And instead what happened is I felt this gut punch and this voice that said, Chris, a baby's shoulders are too tiny to carry the disease of alcoholism on, much less a program of recovery. How are you going to do this? And I wound up going home, and I was trying desperately to be the kind of mother that I wanted to be. And one day my little boy, you know, it was just... Well, that was later on down the road, but he wanted to play, and he wanted to play ball, and I took him outside, and I was trying to play ball with him at 10 o'clock in the morning, and I had to take my beer and cover it up with foil because I don't want the neighbors to see it, right, at 10 a.m., and that little boy threw the ball and knocked the beer over, and it spilled all over the concrete porch outside our back door, and he watched as his mother scooped the dirt and the rocks and the filth off of that porch back into that cup. And I remember putting it up to my lips and just shaking as if my life depended on it. And what I know now is that it did. I was dying from a fatal and progressive illness. You know, by that time, uh, my husband had left me. He couldn't take living with me much. And the day that he pulled out of the driveway, I climbed right back into the bottle. Because what this lie in my head said to me was, see, you were barely drinking and he still left. Obviously, alcohol's not the problem he was. And I expected just to have a little bit of relief when I put that alcohol back into my system. And instead, what I got was a level of unmanageability that I had never known. I was always a hard partier and a runner and a goer. But now I'm starting out in my home bar in Coshocton, Ohio. And I'm coming out of blackouts three days later in a tent in Pennsylvania. And I have no idea how I got there. And I'm not sure, you know, where my son is because it's been days and I start drinking in my home bar in Coshocton, Ohio, and then I go to, down to Ohio State campus in Columbus, a place that I was real familiar with that never took a class in. You know, at 14, I'm running out of the back doors of bars being raided and everything like that, but I would go down there at this point in my life, and I would start drinking, and I'd come out of a blackout, and I'd be surrounded by guns and knives and weapons and people that I didn't know. And once again, I wasn't sure where I'd left that precious son that I wanted more than anything. And then the day came where um, I had gone to a beer wine stop in the morning, and I came back to the house, and I didn't remember bringing my son back with me. And I had long since quit caring about myself, but I still cared desperately for that little boy. There has never been a day that I didn't love that child with all of my heart. There was never a day that I didn't want to take care of him like the mother that I had always promised him to be. But the truth was I had lost that power of choice. And there were days when, you know, when I would make it to work that I would only have enough money to either feed my illness or to feed that little boy. And the truth is my little boy went hungry on many occasions. 
And the other truths are is that, you know, there were times where, I mean, day after day after day, I would be like, okay, I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to drink today. And then I would come home and I'd be like, okay, I'm just got to have a beer to take the edge off. That's all I got to do. Now I'm only going to have a beer. And then I would be, oh, I'm only going to have a six pack. And then I'd be like, okay, I got to stop there because I got to put that little boy to bed. And then after a 12 pack, I would try and put that little boy to the bed on the second floor of our house because that's what good moms do. And I had seen good moms and I would be so drunk already that I would take his little body up and then we would tumble back down those steps. And I would try and take him up again and we would tumble back down those steps. And yet I would tell you that I never abused my child. I stole all the money out of his piggy bank. I stole all the money out of his savings account. And those all are things that I've been able to replace because of Alcoholics Anonymous. But what I stole was his serenity and what I stole was his security. And some of those things I have been able to replace and it's only because of you. And so I went running through the house because I wasn't sure if I brought him home. I'm knocking over furniture, and I'm breaking things, and I'm screaming words that I won't use from behind the podium. I'm screaming, Lee, 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 are you here? And I go running into the living room, and there he sits playing with his little Hot Wheels, and he's four years old. And he looks up at me and just goes right back to playing. What got me to all of you was not the bruises on his little body from tumbling down those steps. What got me to you were not the facts that his little ribs were showing more than they should have been because he wasn't—he was malnourished in my care. What got me to you was not the outside forces that told me, we're going to take your child if you don't get your act together. What got me to you was looking in those eyes of a child that was beginning to accept the unacceptable and the abnormal had become normal. And I had just a brief moment of God's grace that said, you can't live this way anymore. But... At that point, when I was full of guilt, shame, and remorse, I didn't pick up the phone. I picked up the bottle, and so I turned to the refrigerator. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a business card on my kitchen counter. A gentleman had stopped me in my hometown on Main Street one day. And he said, Chris, I'm watching you. And he said, he had, we had met in one of the many churches I tried to get my act together in. And he said, I've been watching you. And he said, honey, he said, your skin is gray. Your eyes are yellow. You are 30 pounds heavier than you were a month ago, and that's your liver. You are dying of untreated alcoholism, and we have a solution. And if you want it, I will help you in any way that I can. And he handed me his business card, and that day I took it and threw it on the kitchen counter and thought, what do I need this for? And that day when I went to get that beer, I saw that business card. And I looked at that business card in the fridge and my son, the business card, the fridge and my son, the business card, the fridge and my son. Seemed like it went on for hours. It was probably seconds. I didn't know what was on the other end of that business card. So I opened the fridge. I grabbed that beer and I chugged half of it down. And then I reached that counter and picked up that business card. And I made that first phone call. And that's why if somebody walks into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm at smelling of alcohol, I don't tell them to come back when they haven't been drinking. Because that half a beer is what it took to get me to pick up that phone. And maybe that drink they have before they walk into my meeting is what it took to get them to me. I have a responsibility as a long-term member of Alcoholics Anonymous to welcome them with open arms. You know, there is no fighting in the lifeboat or we all go down. And I know that my life depends on this, and that person's very well made too. And so I asked them to come and sit with me. I'm notorious for that. And then I've always got a girl side hustle that, you know, if they start acting a fool, then we can get them and take them outside and get them where they need to go. I have that responsibility. But at this time, I didn't know any of that. And Jerry answered the phone, and he, I said, hi, Jerry, this is Chris, and I think I need some help. And he said, are you ready to quit drinking? And I said, Jerry, I've tried to quit drinking for 20 years. I have never been unwilling to stop drinking, Jerry, but I've been completely incapable. And thank God he understood the illness of alcoholism. Thank God he didn't say, call me back when you're ready then. He asked me two simple questions. He said, Chris, what happens when you drink? I said, Jerry, I never know what's going to happen. I may have a good night, and I may wind up in a tent three hours from here. I just don't know. He said, more importantly, honey, what happens when you don't drink? 
I said, I can't quit thinking of drinking, and I'm crazy, Jerry, and I look like every mental illness out there. And as I said in my 11th step workshop, you know, I am not discounting mental illness. There are people in our rooms that definitely need some outside help. That just wasn't my story once I did what you guys asked me to do. And Jerry 12 stepped me into my first meeting that very night, and I would be remiss if I didn't tell you his story. And this is why I always tell people when they say, oh, my God, you're so busy. I don't want to bother you. I'm like, bother me, please. Because Jerry was four years away from his last, I think it was four years, um, it's all running together now. But he was four years away from his last drink that night, and he had been an amazing potter by trade. We actually have a piece of his pottery in our house. And he had been in a car accident in sobriety that crippled both of his hands, and he could no longer create his art. That night, he screamed out in his living room, if this is all there is to sobriety, I might as well drink. Last January, Jerry celebrated 32 years of continuous sobriety because I picked up the phone and called and asked him for help. And it put him in a position to take me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I absolutely loved what I saw. And it wasn't that you're all happy, joyous, and free. It's that there was about 30 people in the room, and they all appeared to be men. I was shopping for my next ex-husband at my first AA meeting. So I got him, as I said. If there's a guy that looks really cool in a black turtleneck and blazer, and you think, ooh, he's one of those dark, artsy types... It may be the fact that he's brooding and depressed because he's never done inventory. So just, um, that's the truth of it. But so I look around, and I look around, and then all of a sudden I see her. And there's one woman there, and she's sitting up front. But she appears to be 112 years old, so I wrote her off as competition. The funny thing is, um, I am 61 now. She was 60 years old when I walked into that meeting. So, you know, if you're looking at me going, what's this old hag got to know? I got to know some stuff. So um, got 28 years of experience. I always tell people, I don't want to share 28 years of information or 28 years of knowledge because there's a lot of bad information that I have learned both in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. What I'm here to share with you today is my experience. And so I saw her, and she came running up to me, and she's like, Hi, I'm Mary Kay, and I'll be your sponsor. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I don't know what that is, but I don't think I want one, you know. And then she started talking to me about being powerless, and I thought, Lady, I've been on the streets. I can't be powerless. When you're powerless, you're weak. When you're weak, you're prey. And when you're prey, they got you. But I don't say this out loud because I don't have anywhere else to go, and I want you to like me. And then she starts talking to me about this God thing. And I'm like, well, yeah, you little 112-year-old midget. That's all you got left in your life, you little blue-haired, thin-lipped thing. You got nothing else. Of course you're turning to this God thing. You see, I don't believe in things I can't see, but I don't tell her that. And then she starts talking about the program. And Alcoholics Anonymous have no idea what she's talking about, but I don't tell her that either. I understand that's no different now than if I would walk out of here and get shot in the chest in a drive-by shooting and I stumble into your local ER with my hands over my bullet wound and say, excuse me, but I got a little scratch here on my chest. Could somebody come and take a look at me? The triage nurse is going to say, sure, honey, you go and wait out in that waiting room, and we'll be with you as soon as we can. And two hours later, they come out and find me bled out and dead in their waiting room. It's exactly what I did in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't tell you the true nature of my wounds. As I said, I took fake it to you, make it to an art form. I went down to the local um, religious store, and I found this greeting card with the Lord's Prayer on it. And I would try and memorize one line at a time. And I'm that girl at the end of your meeting go, Our Father art in heaven! Because I don't know the rest of it, you know, but I'm trying. And I became this spiritual parasite. I would listen to what you said about your God. I would, like, attach to it, and then I would spit it back at you at the next discussion meeting. But there's a problem with that. You can't live a spiritual way of life based on a lie. And at four years away from my last drink, I found myself wrapped in a purple robe, soaked in my own sweat, shaken worse than I'd ever shook coming off of any drink with a handgun ready to eat a bullet. 
Because you see, I'm convinced even this Alcoholics Anonymous thing won't work for somebody like me. There's something fundamentally wrong with me that is not wrong with you. I understand now that I'm suffering from an illness that is so deadly that just a belief in a higher power, an idea, especially your idea of a higher power, is not going to change me. I have to have conscious contact, a direct experience with this higher power, and I wasn't doing any of the things that you asked me to do to do that. I was practicing buffet AA and just doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that, just enough so that 112-year-old lady would stay off my back. And right then my phone rang. It was that Jerry guy again, and I thought he was part of the AA police. And that was before we had caller ID. And I'm laying there ready to take my own life, and I answer the phone, hello, because I'm still lying every breath I take. And he said, Chris, I've noticed that you haven't been at a few meetings. You see, Jerry didn't believe the lie that I used to say in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you want what I have, you'll come find me. I hear that a lot in my hometown. I hear him say, well, they just didn't want it bad enough. And I take personal responsibility that maybe they wanted it bad enough, maybe I didn't give them a sufficient solution. That's my responsibility, is to give the newcomer an adequate presentation of the program and walk them through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And something happened right in that moment, and there was this line from a book I had read in high school, Dante's Inferno. It came into my head, and it said, the hottest place in hell is reserved for those who in times of crisis choose to sit on the fence. And I realized I'd been a fence sitter in the rooms of AA for four years. And I said, Jerry, I'm not okay. He said, I know that. There's a woman coming from 40 miles away. Can you hang on? She's coming to pick you up, and she's going to take you back to her home group, and they're going to help you. And I said, I'll hang on. And Jerry stayed on the phone with me until she got there. And she, on the way back to her home group, 40 miles back, she said, you're going to get real and you're going to get honest. And we walked into that meeting. They changed their format that day. It was my first ever women's meeting. And I emotionally vomited all over their table. And I got real and I got honest. I said, I don't know if I believe. I don't know what I believe. And they asked me that simple question, are you willing to believe? And I said, I'm willing to do anything you tell me to do. I had reached that point where I had ran out of ideas. I had ran out of just scams to come up with, and I found that I couldn't scam this way of life. And they sat down with me, and they opened at the title page of the big book, and they showed me what they had done, and they sent me home with stuff, and they sent me home with phone numbers. And I marched into my local AA the next meeting, and there were three other women that were with even less time than me, all dying in the rooms. And I said, ladies, they tell me if we do this stuff and we do what they did, we can be okay. What do we have to lose? And so we started getting together at each other's house a couple times a week for two, three, four hours at a time, combing through the first 164 pages of the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, we did had no idea what we were doing. We were the biggest bucket of sick you ever laid eyes on. There was literally a fist fight in my driveway one night over what it said in the book. So... But what I learned was that when willingness and action come together, God's grace literally erupts. Because that was 24 years ago, and three out of the four of us, 75% of us, the same success percentage rate in the forward to the second edition, have maintained continuous sobriety in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's why I believe this program works. And I would love to stand here just like I think it was, you know, a couple other speakers said and tell you that I've just skipped through my sobriety ever since. (laughs) But that's not the truth. I had a lot of things to undo and had some things to unravel. I'm the girl that at two years sober, you let me be your secretary, and I didn't think you needed all that change in your basket. You see, secretary and treasurer were all the same job in my tiny little town, and so I just pocketed a bunch of your cash, you know? And so there was a lot of things that I had to clean up and a whole lot of things I had to micrate. And what happened to me is I had bought this little house for my son and I, and it was a beat-up old house. We used to play a game when it rained hard called, Get the Buckets! You know, and we would just... And my house burned down due to an electrical fire. And I thought it was the worst thing that could have ever possibly happened, but it wasn't. Because I was really having a hard time wrapping my mind around this God of my understanding. And if you were in the 11th Step Workshop, you heard my story about being introduced to a God of my understanding through a woodpecker. And there was another day that I was out there stomping in those woods trying to figure out how I was going to just undo some of this stuff I had gotten myself into. And my phone rang. 
And there was a man on the other end of the phone, and we had been in service, some service stuff together. And he said, Chris, he said, I'm out in Joshua Tree State Forest. And he said, I really don't know why I'm calling you. And he said, I haven't had a cell signal all day. And I got the strongest nudge to give you a call, and so I am. And I said, okay. And we started talking, and he said, how are you doing? And and he was a kind and gentle and amazing man in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I felt like I could tell him the truth. And I said, I'm not doing so good. I'm getting really bored with these people in my local AA. And I don't know what to do. And I'm afraid I'm going to leave. And if I leave, I'm going to die. And I'll, you know. And he said, hey, there's a guy named Ed. And he's doing a big book workshop. And he said, it's in Lake Milton, Ohio. And he said, you ought to go. And it's next weekend. And that call saved my life. And that call was from the man that's doing your tapes this weekend. And we had just, like I said, been friends in service. And I walked into that big book workshop, and I was still struggling with that 11th step. And what happened to me in that workshop was I began to watch Ed. And I had always wanted to see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, God. I just couldn't believe in things I couldn't see. I was starting to get a concept, and all of a sudden... I literally had a spiritual experience where I saw this man morph into a being that I can't explain to this day. And I saw this light pour out of his eyes. And I had this sudden feeling that overcame me that was so strong and it was undeniable. And when he was done talking, I ran up to him. And those of you that knew him, he was literally like seven foot two. And I am four foot ten without my shoes on. And I looked up at him. I'm like, Ed, I saw God in you. I saw God in you. And he took his giant hands and wrapped them around my tiny little baby hands. And he said... He looked me in the eyes in a way no other man ever had. And he said, Chris, the only thing that you see in me is a direct reflection of what already lives in you. And right in that moment, that hole that I told you about that was in my chest, that gaping wound that the icicles hung in, it was so cold. I had a spiritual experience where I heard an audible sound and had a physical sensation right in my solar plexus that literally went whoosh. And it was as if that hole closed up. And I began to get super active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I began to do all kinds of things. One of the things that I did was um, Bob brought a big book workshop to a neighboring town 20 miles from me. And it was the Fellowship of the Spirit big book workshop. And I fell madly in love with the Fellowship of the Spirit. I fell madly in love with the book. I fell madly in love with all of you. And I fell madly in love with him. Um, and so I was off and running. And we were like the AA couple and running around, you know, and doing all these things. And I'm starting to have these experiences that, you know, I can't explain away. I'm at my home group, you know, and I told you about my dad and my dad had had this beautiful experience where um, it was his 90th birthday and somebody asked me to go speak and I said, you know what, it's my dad's birthday. And there's a line in our book that says a spiritual life that doesn't include one's family obligations might not be so perfect after all. And so my priority was always for my daddy on his birthday because he had never had a birthday party. He was a child of the depression and he was the youngest of four kids. So I always made a big deal about it. One year I was so broke, and this is when gas was cheap, that the only thing that I could do is I painted in shoe polish on my car, honk, I'm 88, and we drove around the outer belt of Columbus, Ohio, while truckers honked at my dad, and he waved at him, you know, and he, he couldn't lift his arm for two weeks, but he could tell you that story till the day he died, um, but this time, I called him, I said, Dad, somebody wants me to speak on your birthday, and he said, I said, what do you want to do? And he goes, how about dinner and a meeting, honey? I said, all right, let's do that. And one other woman had known it was my dad's birthday. And you see, she had read that part of our book that says we don't only reach out to the alcoholic, we reach out to their families. And when we walked in, there was a bunch of people just like you. And you all had on pointy little birthday hats. And you had birthday balloons and birthday cake and birthday napkins and birthday cups. And my dad was all excited. And then you trampy AA women started slithering up to my 90-year-old father and wrapping your bodies around him and going, happy birthday, Phil. And my dad's like... It's his best birthday ever. And, but then what happened was I shared my story. He hadn't heard it before. And my one friend went up to him. She said, so, Phil, what do you think you're shiny little Penny now? And he said, Penny, hell, that girl's a quarter. I'm like, yes. Yeah. And so fast forward to a year later, my dad had lost his battle with Alzheimer's. And I'm sitting at my home group, and it's on my anniversary, and I'm really sad because, you see, I had been given the gift from all of you. 
and I knew I had not had near enough time to make things right with my father. And I kicked my shoes off because I'm kind of a hillbilly, and that's what I do in a meeting. And so I go to put my shoes back on, and all of a sudden I feel something in my shoe. Now, the way my alcoholic mind works is there's a poisonous spider in my shoe. It is going to bite the bottom of my shoe, and I'm going to be dead in two hours. This is great. I'm going to die on my anniversary. Okay. Um, but instead, I, you guys have taught me to ignore that first voice. And so I get down on my shoe, and what I pulled out that night, just one year to the exact day, maybe one year to the exact hour that my father had said that, maybe one year to the exact minute was this. It was the shiniest quarter I had ever laid eyes on. Now, you can tell me how that quarter got out of your basket, because I was no longer stealing from you, (laughs) and into the toe of my little pointy shoe. But I know exactly how it got there. It got there through the grace and the power of a loving God that when I walked in here to all of you, there was absolutely nothing you could do to convince me that that power existed. And now a few short 24 hours later, there's nothing that you can do to convince me that power doesn't exist. You see, and then I just started going through my recovery, and it was just an absolute gift, and I was lit up, and I started getting involved in all kinds of things, and got a new job at a botanical garden, and um, there was a little bit of a problem with that, and that's that, you know, I had never worked for a nonprofit. I had a high school diploma, and I didn't know the difference between a daisy and a dandelion, And I started manipulating, and I started conning, and I'm 16 years away from my last drink, and I'm starting to live that double life that's in the big book. You see, I'm out there, and I'm sharing, and I'm speaking, and I'm sponsoring, and I'm doing all these service commitments, and I'm doing all this stuff. Do you hear anything missing from the program? Because I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this. And all of a sudden, I'm finding myself in collision with everybody and everything. I'm in a job where I'm having to be dishonest every day of my life. I'm living that double life. I'm a, I'm that person in the book now at 16 years away from my last drink that I'm going to afraid that you're going to see what's going on behind my closed doors. I'm with the most wonderful man ever. I have a wonderful little house that I bought, all these things. But behind closed doors, I'm snapping and snorting. You know, I'm speaking in front of 10,000 people in Minnesota. And two weeks later, I'm throwing a lid of a trash can at this guy. And I'm thinking I'm doing okay. See, you can't convince me. I mean, I see that I got a problem. You just can't convince me that I don't have a solution. So I think I've got an 11th step problem that I just need more God. That's all it is. I just need more God, right? And everything will be okay. So I start taking all these spiritual trainings. And I don't just take regular spiritual trainings. I take spiritual teacher trainings because I'm going to come enlighten all of you when I'm done, right? And I keep thinking that if I just buy one more Buddha statue at TJ Maxx, I'm going to be okay, right? Yeah, my house looks like a freaking ashram to this day, okay? I've gotten rid of some of it, but it's, there's some, it's like crystals and stones and scarves and bells and bowls and, yeah, and everything you can imagine. And what happened to me was at almost 17 years away from my last drink, I became mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and financially bankrupt. I spent 100% of my life savings on all of those spiritual trainings. And they all worked beautifully until I left my house because they were all very beautiful practices, all of which I use today, but none of them treated alcoholism. And by the grace of a loving God, I had a man in my life that had enough courage that one day he came home from taping an event just like this. And he handed me a set of CDs. Now, he handed them to me, granted, like a dog, like a bone that you're handing a dog that you don't know if it's going to bite you or not, you know. And he's like, honey, you might want to listen to this, you know. And I snatched him out of his hand, and I'm like, what do I need these for? You see, I'm at a point in my life where my very life depends on your constant thought of me and how you can meet my needs, I am not wanting to do any of this malarkey that you're talking about. And, but one day it got bad enough and I got in enough hurt, you know, and I'm living in that self-reliance. I'm trying to create my own spiritual awakening that just like that business card on that counter, I picked up those CDs and jammed one of them in there. And this voice came over and it said, hi, my name's Katie Parker and I'm an alcoholic. And at 17 years away from my last drink, I was dying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went, you have my attention. And then I listened to those CDs, and she began to talk about 
what happened to her in recovery, in the rooms, without a drink in her brain, seven meetings a week, being full of service, being doing all these things, and how the bedevilments had came in her life. And she was a prey to misery and depression. She couldn't make a living. She was, you know, just all of those things. And she gave me a sufficient first-step experience for a person with double-digit sobriety. And that, But she didn't leave me there. What she gave me was the solution. And she talked about the third step and a tenth step in ways that I had never heard And then she talked about living in the spiritual disciplines of 10, 11, and 12. So I did what I had done when I was a newcomer, and I sought her out. Now, what I can tell you is AA is better than the FBI when it comes to getting a phone number, right? I've made a couple phone calls, and within seconds, it was like I had her home phone number, her cell phone number, her husband's cell phone number, and we believe one of her children's cell phone numbers. Um, So I started calling her, and the first call said, Hi, this is Chris. I'd really like to talk to you. I know we've never met. And then day two, I called her back, sounded similar. Day three, I'm getting a little irritated, and I'm making up a story. She's not who she says she is. This is a bunch of crap. So by day five of stalker calling her, I'm like, hi, Katie, this is Chris from Ohio. And I've been calling you every day. I'd really like a return call. And at this point, I am locked and loaded because I have made up a story that she's not who she says she is. She's another crap speaker. She's not doing the deal. And when she does call me, I'm going to tell her exactly what I think about her. And so then day six, I call her again. I get nothing. Day seven, All of a sudden, she says that my call sounded like this. I don't remember. She said it went, oh, my God, this is Chris, and if you don't call me, I'm going to die. And on day eight, she called me back. And I'm like, oh, I'm ready for you. You And she said, hi, Chris, this is Katie. And she said, honey, first of all, I need to apologize. She said, I've been out of the country and haven't had cell service for two weeks. But I got all your calls. What can I do to help you? And she says now, she said, I knew one of two things. You were bat crap crazy. She didn't say it that nice. Or you were as desperate as the dying could be. And she found out in one phone call it was the second. And so what she did, and I'll give you in a brief way because I know I need to wrap this up. She... Um, took me through all 12 steps at a very rapid pace. She understood I had a really deep understanding of the big book, and she knew that that wasn't going to do me a bit of good, was to have another experience of knowledge, that we had to have an experience of action. And so that's exactly what she did. And she took me all through 12 steps. And what happened to me at the end of those 30 days was that the first time at in 17 years of recovery, I became 100% current on my amends. I had set up payment plans. I had made a public amends to all of you in a meeting. I had done everything that was asked of me. There were times when I had to do, I had to take a lunch break at 9.30 in the morning because that was the only time she could do a piece of inventory with me. There was one time she was traveling and she could only talk to me at 11 o'clock at night. And so I set my alarm for 11 o'clock at night and I spoke with her. I did everything she asked. And what happened at the end of that 30 days is I was rocketed into that fourth dimension of existence that I thought you all were lying about. And I have not had to go back in that dark hole ever since. And I have a responsibility because what I do is I live in those spiritual disciplines of 10, 11, and 12. And I have a responsibility to find that woman in the meeting that is looking as dark and as desperate as I was and to climb down in the hole with her, not wait for her to come get me. And I climb down in that hole with her and I pray to God the sunlight of the spirit comes out of me and onto her. And I grab her by the hand and one step at a time, we can climb out of that. And what I have seen to prove true is that when I do that with you, we shoulder all the burdens together. We have a common problem, a common solution. We go on a common journey. My sponsees, there is no hierarchy in our family. You see, I am shoulder to shoulder with everyone that I work at. I belong to an amazing group called Wenches in the Trenches because we will go anywhere and do anything that you ask us to do. There is no place too dark, too desperate, too dirty for us to go and be of service. And I'm going to wrap up with just telling you a story because I could go on for another hour and I'm not going to do that to you because I know we got to close up and y'all got to pee. I know you had coffee. It's all good. Um, but I've got to wrap up with this one story because it's so important. It, it definitely just shows the power of practicing these principles in all of our affairs. That little boy that I told you about that I brought into this world to fix me. 
Well, he had been estranged from his father for a number of reasons, and he made a decision when he got laid off from a job at 19 years old. He was heading 700 miles west to make it with right with his dad, if you know what I mean. And so what he does is, because it's my son's a crafty soul, man, he um, got a job out where his dad lived before his dad even knew he was um, showing up. In fact, he got a job at his father's company. I love the chutzpah. Um, and so he went out there and got this job and shows up. He also, he began welding on emergency helicopters, and then he also became a firefighter, and then he met her. Um, and so he wound up staying out in Missouri, and one day I'm getting ready to share at an event in Indiana, and my phone rings. And I always say my son is of the text generation, you know, and so when he calls, I panic. And I, and I looked at the people I was sitting at the table with, it was right before I spoke, and I said, hey, we've still got 15 minutes, do you mind if I take this? They said, absolutely, go. And so I ran in the corner, I'm like, hello, what's up, buddy, are you okay? And he goes, mama, he said, we're having the worst flooding we have ever had in my, Missouri. And my son was the chief safety officer of his fire department, he said, mama, we have already lost two pieces of equipment that we can't get through the water. And he said, I am standing on one side of the road, and there is a woman on the other side of the road, mama, and she has what looks like a newborn baby, and I cannot get to her. The current is too swift. I can't reach her, and I'm like, baby, what can I possibly do? What can I do to help you? And he goes, mama, I got to get my men home. It's my job. I have to get them all home alive, and I don't know how we're going to do this. I said, baby, take a breath. What can I do for you? And he said, you're in an AA event, right? You see, my son had been raised in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had taken him to every open meeting I could when he was a child. Every meeting, and a group of grumpy old men taught my boy how to act in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. They would sit him in the back and send me up front, and I am forever grateful to them. But what happened on this day? He said, Mama, he said, have you spoke yet? And I said, no, honey, I haven't. It's just in a few minutes. He said, when you get up behind that podium, he said, will you please ask your friends to pray for us here in Missouri? And I said, absolutely, I will. And he said, Mama, I don't get it one bit, but you drunks have direct connections to God. And he hung up the phone. And the next day I got a phone call. And it was a phone call that I think every mother of a firefighter doesn't want to get. And there was someone on the other end of the phone, and he said, is this so-and-so? And my heart dropped, and I'm like, oh, my God. And he goes, oh, ma'am, no, your son's fine. And I said, you could have opened with that. <laughs> and he said, I'm just calling to tell you, ma'am. He said, I don't understand it. He said, but I do apologize because I believe your son broke what's called your anonymity. He said, he told us that he called and asked for your friends to pray for us. And ma'am, he said that was at approximately 2.20 in the afternoon, and from 2.21 on, we never lost another piece of equipment. Your son was able to save that newborn baby, and we still don't know how. And ma'am, all of our men got home safe. And he said, I just wanted to thank you, and I want you, if you get behind the podium, to thank those people in Alcoholics Anonymous, because you see, they save lives of people they don't even know. And that's how I know that sometimes... You know, you may not, even today, you may reject my suggestions. You may even refuse the love that I'm trying to give you from behind the podium. But what I know is you're absolutely defenseless against my prayers. And when I get home tonight, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all of you and hold you in my prayers, and that is when you're going to get the best that Chris C. from Coshocton, Ohio, has to offer. Now, I have tried to suit up and show up, and I'm going to leave you with one request. 700 miles west of here in Missouri... There is a tiny little 10-year-old blue-eyed blonde, and my son's favorite line always is, Mama, it's bad enough that she looks just like you, but does she have to act just like you? <laughs> so please, keep doing what you're doing here in Cincinnati. It's so obvious. It's powerful. It's strong. It's healing, and it's working. Because when my granddaughter comes in, I don't want her to wait 17 years to get what I've got. Thank you.